Turn with me to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah chapter 1. Let me read the first six verses and then lead us in prayer. If you're looking for the book of Zechariah, go to Matthew and then back up about eight or ten pages and you'll be near the beginning of Zechariah. Last three books of the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. They're books that were written after the exile, and they were designed to encourage the people to be obedient as they returned to the land from the exile. So they're the latest books written in the Old Testament, and fittingly, they are at the back of our Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen to me, nor give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. This is the living word of the living God. Would you bow with me as we go to that living God in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for your revelation to us, even as we're going to find in this passage, you have told us of yourself through your men, the prophets, and through your word, the scriptures. And that revelation has not only informed us about your nature, your character, your existence, your reality. But that revelation has compelled us, commanded us, exhorted us, directed us, guided us to act in particular ways and especially directed us how to live with you and towards you. And the commands that you gave the Israelites are the same kinds of commands that you have given to us. And what the Israelites were commanded to heed in this passage are words that we also need today. And so would you quicken us this morning? Would your spirit have freedom to operate in our hearts. And by that we mean, might we not quench Him? Might we not resist Him and push against Him? But might we be pliable to Him and in what He says? And might He shape us the way He might shape us 
by this word. And so we commend ourselves to you and ask for your grace for the worship ahead. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last Sunday morning we talked about the significance of the book of Zechariah and how that book was critical in the calling of the nation of Israel as it went back from Babylon and Medo-Persia into the land of Israel, the promised land, and for the rebuilding of the temple after 70 years of exile in Babylon and then the transition from Babylon to Medo-Persia. The book is important not only for its calling on the Israelites to complete the building of the temple, but it is also important because of the explanation of the Messiah, of the confident hope that he would reign on his throne. And that's that's the point to which we are going over these next three or four months. We want to get to Zechariah 14 and we want to see him exalted and on his messianic throne. One commentator, as I mentioned last week, has said about Zechariah that it is, quote, the most messianic, the most truly apocalyptic and eschatological of all the writings of the Old Testament. And it is because of that messianic influence that it makes it even more compelling for us as New Testament believers because we love the Messiah. We love Jesus Christ. As you think about the ministry of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, How would you summarize the message of his ministry? What is the distillation of everything that Jesus taught and said in the four Gospels? Well, we might venture a number of different ways. But let me draw your attention to some of his very first words and some of his very last words to guide us this morning. Matthew chapter 4. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, they're speaking about John the Baptist. When Jesus had heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At the end of his ministry, Luke chapter 24, and he said to them, the twelve, thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. His first word was repent. His last word to the disciples was the message you're taking to the nations is repent. The message of Jesus Christ was consumed from beginning to end with repentance. He came to liberate sinners from sin and he died to loose the binding chains of sin and hell from repentant sinners. The Christian life is a life that is focused on, centered around, predicated on repentance. It is that principle that transformed the life of Martin Luther and set the course of the Reformation. Martin Luther was a man who was absolutely overwhelmed by his conscience and his inability to do right. 
On one occasion, he went to confessional and the priest hearing the confession from the other side of the booth said to him, that's not a sin. Go and come back when you have really done something worthy of confession. But he understood that his heart was just wrapped up with sin and his desires were wrong and his longings were wrong and everything was everything was overwhelmed by his sinful activities, sinful words, sinful thoughts. And so he, he ventured to do everything he could to be righteous. He lived a life of penance. Whatever the priest said to do, he would do that and more. Always trying to make retribution for his sin. Always trying to make himself right. And understanding he could never get there. And when he came to understand Jesus Christ was and is his righteousness, he was set free. And so it was that In 1517, he nailed 95 theses, 95 topics for debate on the door of the church in Wittenberg. And the first of those topics for debate was this statement. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ in saying, repent, intended that the whole life of believers should be repentance. And as you read through those 95 theses, you understand that Luther was just driven by this idea of our life is built on repentance, of of entrusting our sin to the Lord and having him redeem and buy our sin and make us to be right with Christ. The Christian life begins with repentance and it consists of ongoing repentance This has been the principle of God's followers, not only since the time of Christ, but all the way through biblical history. So as Zechariah begins this letter and he begins this this prophecy, you know, I'm so much in the New Testament, it's going to take me a while to shift from letter to prophecy. Hang with me, I'll get there. As Zechariah begins this prophecy and he begins this admonition to rebuild the temple, He begins first by reminding the readers of their need for repentance, the critical nature of repentance, that repentance is the starting point of their spiritual lives and their transformation. And brothers and sisters, it is still our starting point to spiritual life and spiritual transformation. In these opening six verses of this prophecy, we might summarize what Zechariah says this way. The blessings of God's promises are conditioned on repentance. If you want God's promises, if you want to experience the blessing of God, if you want to know the favor of God, it is conditioned upon your repentance. Stated another way, God does not bless those who are unrepentant, unbroken, and unwilling to move away from their sin. It is only when we say, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, that God will bless and pour out His favor on us. The blessings of God's promises are conditioned on repentance. And this morning specifically, we want to consider five attributes of repentance, five attributes of repentance. Notice, first of all, the first attribute, verse one, the right of the prophet to call for repentance, the right of the prophet to call for repentance. And verse one is providing primarily historical background. So he's reminding us in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, 
the prophet, who was Zechariah. He was the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying. So this verse is giving us that historical background, and we might just remind us, we spent a lot of time on this last week, but just by way of a summary or reminder, uh, Israel, the ten northern tribes of the unified nation, so the the vast majority of Israel was taken into captivity by Assyria in 722 B.C. Following that, roughly 100 years later, a little bit more than 100 years later, starting in 605 B.C., the two southern tribes, Judah, were also taken into captivity by the nation that had supplanted the Assyrians, Babylonia, and they took Israel captive in three successive uh, deportations, 605, 597, 586. In the midst of those deportations, a deportation that had been promised by God and warned of by God, yet there's still a, a note of blessing and a, and a hopefulness because Jeremiah prophesies in both Jeremiah 25 and 29 that the captivity for Judah would last only 70 years and then they would be sent back. In fact, Isaiah tells us 150 years before it happened that the one who would send them back would be Cyrus. And indeed, that is exactly what happened. Cyrus sends them back in 586 B.C., 70 years after the captivity. Sends back 50,000 people to go back. And immediately when they go back, they start laying the foundation for the the reconstruction of the temple. The temple had been destroyed after the captivity, so they relay the foundation for the temple. And immediately there's opposition from the Babylonians about the rebuilding of the temple, and the temple work stops. And from 535 until 520, nothing happens. Fifteen years They walked by in Jerusalem where the foundation had been poured and they saw no progress. Day after day, day after day, year after year, decade, 15 years, no work. And in 520, Haggai, two months before Zechariah, and then Zechariah write to compel the people to rebuild the temple. It has been noted that when the nation returned to the land, quote, there was no escaping from the past in the Jerusalem of Zechariah's day. Everywhere one looked, everyone one, where, everywhere one went, there were the charred ruins of a once grand city. They constituted that ruin a perpetual reminder of what had happened because of the past sins of the nation. The nation had been vanquished, destroyed in many ways. The best and brightest had been taken off and taken away. And the nation, the land, had suffered. And that now has been, we might say, extended into the present. Because even though the nation had gone back in 536 and 535, nothing had changed The destruction was still there. Nothing had been rebuilt. And it was all because of the rebellious inactivity of the returned nation. So they're still experiencing the consequences of their sin. They were led into captivity because of their sin. They returned and they're still in sin. And so Haggai and Zechariah are writing to exhort the people to repent of fear and apathy and to resume their work. 
I want you to notice one other thing, not just about the historical context, but I want you to notice something about Zechariah that he reveals in this word, in this verse. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the prophet. Interesting. Nehemiah tells us in Nehemiah chapter 12 that he was the grandson of Edo. We know that from this verse. But that they were both priests. And here, Zechariah does not identify himself as a priest calling people to do holy work, though that is their responsibility as well. But here he identifies himself as a prophet, which is also what he was. But he's emphasizing the work and the calling of the prophet. Now, when we think about prophets, what do you think about? You probably think about, oh, that's a guy that tells the future. It's, it's one that looks into the future and tells us what life is going to be like. And that is certainly part of the role of the prophets, the biblical prophets. We see that, for instance, in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 to 12 is just filled with what is the future going to look like. And we find that scattered throughout all of the prophetic writings. But the prophet was also God's mouthpiece to pass on a message. Not just foretelling, but forthtelling, declaring, speaking. So at times the prophet was not predicting, but he was instructing, he was reminding, he was warning. And uh, we can go, for instance, numerous places in the Old Testament where we see this about the prophets. Let me just give you one example from the life of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, the Lord says to Jeremiah, verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nation. So I called you to be a prophet. And what would Jeremiah do as a prophet? Notice verse 7. The Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth. In other words, don't say I'm too young to do this task because God says I've appointed you. Because, notice what God's calling on his life is, because everywhere I send you, you shall go and all that I command you, you shall speak. The fundamental role of Jeremiah as a prophet is to declare what God tells him to speak. He's God's mouthpiece. We find that same thing in verse 17, same chapter. Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them, God says to Jeremiah, all which I commanded you. Do not be dismayed before them or I will dismay you before them. In other words, don't pull back. Everything I've said, I have said for a purpose and a reason and I want you to declare it and speak it. That's your role. And so as Zechariah comes to the nation of Israel, he is coming with that as the background. He is not so much speaking about what the future is going to look like, though we're going to see that in the back half of the book and especially in chapter 14. But he is speaking to declare God's message, God's word to the people. In fact, we find that in the, in the previous clause, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet. The word of the Lord came. In other words, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the one who has chosen Israel to be his people, that has mandated for Israel how they will function and what they will do, the one who has revealed to them all of, the, all of his words and his, his requirements for them and his provision for them. He is the one who is speaking. He has declared 
what should be spoken. And notice that the prophet is clear. The word of the Lord came. It wasn't something that that Zechariah created on his own. It wasn't conjured up in his own imagination. It was something that was revealed to him, that was directed to him, that came from outside of him and compelled him to act. That same phrase, the word of the Lord came, is used many times in the Old Testament. It's used 110 times in the Old Testament. Of those 110 usages, 81 times it's used in the major prophets, primarily Jeremiah and Ezekiel, as well as in Haggai and Zechariah. it's, It's the word, it's a phrase that means God's spoken and you must communicate what God has spoken. There's an obligation. There's a duty to reveal the content of the message. And the message, in a moment, excuse me, we're going to see that that message is a message of repentance. That's in verse 3. But for now, simply notice Zechariah's right to speak. He's not speaking on his own. He is speaking as one who is the mouthpiece of God. And as, as the mouthpiece of God, it's not just his right to speak. He is compelled to speak. He is obligated to speak. There, there's, no, there's no possibility for Zechariah to say, well, God said this, but do with it what you want. Or maybe I'll do with it what I want and maybe tell you and maybe I won't. No. There's a divine mandate. You must speak. God has conveyed a message to him and he must speak that message. Zechariah is authoritative And Zechariah must speak because he speaks for God. And again, that that just sets the table for us for hearing what Zechariah is about to say and to understand this isn't just this isn't just a, a decent idea. This is compelling. It's mandated. It's essential. It's critical for us. So the first attribute of repentance that I want you to see is the right of the prophet to call for repentance. Secondly, let us see in verse 2 the need for repentance. The need for repentance. Now notice Zechariah. One of the things I do in a sermon because I was trained to do that many years ago, decades ago in seminary. You know, you want an introduction that's compelling and draws people in. Maybe a story, which I didn't do today. Sorry about that. But maybe a story that's particularly enticing and it makes people want to listen to what you have to say and you're drawing them in. Zechariah didn't go to that seminary. He just jumped in feet first. Nothing compelling. The, the, the prophecy begins with abruptness. And even not just abruptness, but severity. What does God say? The Lord was very angry With your fathers. How's that for compelling? How's that for draw you in and listen to what I have to say? It's not just that he was very angry, but the phrase we might, the phrase very angry might more literally be translated, he was angry with anger. It's the same word, anger, one in a verb form, one in a noun form, stuck together. He's angry, angry. The word indicates a ferocity of anger. And, and we see the intensity of it here. It's, it's, it's God 
wrathful, indignant, dare we say even hostile towards the fathers. We see that kind of anger throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah reflects on it. Isaiah chapter 54 in relation to the flood of Noah. He says, uh, Isaiah 54, 8, In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. It was... One of the emphases of that passage is God's got a plan of redemption, a plan of salvation, but don't overlook the fact that God is also a God of anger and wrath. And it is, it is such a wrathful anger that it wiped out the entire population of the world except for Noah and his family. His anger compelled him to judge the world. We find that something similar in Isaiah 57 Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. Speaking about the nation of Israel. And he went on turning away in the way of his heart. It was his heart that led him away from me and I responded to that in anger. You find similar kinds of things all through the scriptures, including the New Testament. Romans 1.18, Hebrews 12.29. And others. This verse is a reminder that God is an angry God. Culturally, we like to talk about the love of God. Oh, God is loving and God is kind and God is benevolent. He's he's like this doddering old grandfather that's a little bit forgetful and really compassionate, has a big candy drawer, and just loves to do nice things for his grandchildren. Well, that's true. Not the doddering part. He loves to do things for his children but not at the expense of his wrath. He is also a wrathful God. God's anger, we might say it this way, God's anger is the retributive aspect of his righteousness in which he cannot tolerate sin. His righteousness is so great that if there is something that is unrighteous, there must be retribution against it. He cannot withhold his retribution against sin and still be righteous. He must respond to sin. Says J.I. Packer, divine wrath is righteous antagonism toward all that is unholy. It is the revulsion of God's character to what violates God's will. Says David Wells, In his book, God in the Whirlwind, this wrath is the way in which God's holiness finally engages all that is wrong, all that has defiled his world, all that has defiled his law, all that has rejected his rule, and all that has spurned his love expressed in Christ. It is the pure reaction of God to all that is impure. It is the dissatisfaction that arises within God over all that is other than what it should be, all that is dark, All that is still has a raised fist. Wrath is his repudiation of all of that. It is the way in which he upholds the moral order of the universe. Notice 
God is never angry without cause. Yesterday evening, Regine came running into the den where I was working. And she looked at me and said, is everything okay? Because she heard me from across the house in a tone that was less than gentle, speaking to a chat box on his computer for somebody that wasn't answering his question in frustration. You know, I was in that cycle of log into the website. Oh, second, second step authentication. We need to send you a code. Click this button. Click the button. Can't send you the code. How am I supposed to log in if you don't send me the code so that I can log in? Click the button again. Refresh the browser. Close the browser. Open another browser. Can't send you the code. Can't send you the code. Go to this page. We need to send you a code in order for you to log in. I'm trying. (laughs) Go to our chat box. Chat box takes you to an automated thing. It's not actually a person. It's a bot box, I think, or something And it takes you to a list. You know, just do this. And what does it say? Log in so we can send you the code. And it was about then that Regine came in the room. Seriously. That's a capricious anger. There's no really good reason for it. That's not God. God's anger always is righteous. And always is directed towards sin. He's never randomly angry. And we even see that in this verse. Notice what the prophet says. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. He's not just angry in general. He is angry particularly against the fathers. That phrase... The fathers can be used about all of the ancestors that preceded the Israelites. It's used both specifically like your geological or not geological, um, your your genealogical. You got to get all the vowels in there. The genealogical fathers that preceded them. So like my father lives in Tampa. That's your father. But it might also be his father or his father's father. And it can go all the way back to the patriarchs in Genesis um, 12 and following. Here, that's not the way he's using it. Notice he says your fathers. Like those who have immediately preceded you. And I think he is very clearly speaking because it's going to be in the context of what we're going to see in the remaining verses. He's speaking about the fathers who sinned in such a way that it led to the, ca- the captivity in Babylonia. And we see that even in verses 4 and 5, right? Do not be like your fathers. Again, same phrase, your fathers. To whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord, return now from your evil ways, your evil deeds. But they didn't listen. And what happened? You went into captivity. That's what happened. And so he's thinking about about those who had immediately preceded them. Remember your family history. Remember what's gone on ahead. And again, 
Notice that the sin was not just that they missed the righteous standard of God. It is that they were were rebels against God. They rejected his sovereign place as king in their lives. And we find that in 2 Kings 24 about the warning about the captivity. You're not willing to submit to me as king, God says. And that was their condemnation. What's interesting is that Zechariah has the same historical background that the, to the people that he's speaking to, right? So he also was in captivity. He was born in Babylon. And then he went back with the first group that went to, to go back to Israel. And now he's declaring to them, speaking to them as a prophet. So he has the same ancestry. But notice he says, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. And so he's not so much talking about biological fathers because they had the same biological history. He's talking about spiritual fatherhood and he's separating himself out from them. You're following a different God, as it were. You're following a different spiritual legacy than I am. Beware. Because that legacy that you're following, God was angry with and God judged. So this verse provides for us a context for what he's going to say in verse 3. And it is an implied warning to the readers. Listen to me. There is a cost to sin. And it will not be escaped. You cannot escape the wrath of God. If you engage in willful sin. I need repentance. And you need repentance. Israel needed repentance. Every man. Everywhere. Needs repentance. God is angry with sin. And he will ultimately pour out his wrath on your sin. That's a certainty. That's analogous to what the Apostle Paul says in the passage that we read earlier this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. All of these things happen to them. And it's a, that, the first 10 verses of that chapter are a litany of Israel's big sins. And God's judgment on that sin And he says in verse 11, all these things happen to them as an example, and they're written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, what's the conclusion that we ought to draw from this? How should we think about the nation of Israel, her sins and God's response to her sins? Therefore, let him who stand, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Pay attention. You think that God is just going to overlook your sin and say, oh, it's no big deal. Forget about it. No. He's an angry God. And he will pour out his wrath on you if you aren't repentant. If you are a sinner. And you are. And if you are a sinner who is unrepentant and headed for God's anger and unending wrath. I want you to hear then also verse 3. Not only your need for repentance, you need it. Because God is an angry God. But then also hear this. 
the blessing of repentance. I've just said, God is angry with sin and he will ultimately pour out his wrath on your sin. But this verse, verse 3, contains a caveat and a provision for that statement. Notice verse 3. Therefore, because God is angry and God was particularly angry against the spiritual leaders that led to the Babylonian captivity. Therefore, say to them, to those who are hearing now in Israel, who are apathetic about the rebuilding of the temple, say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me. It's a warning. If they don't respond, they will experience a similar wrath from God as their ancestors. And this verse also helps us to see the weight of sin, the horridness of sin, the ugliness of sin, the severity of sin. I mean, think about it. The nation had gone back. They'd laid the foundation. They were just slow to finish the job. They were... We would just say, well, he just struggles with procrastination. And it would be better if he would work a little bit faster and harder. But it's not like it's the worst thing in the world. They were procrastinators and they were a little bit fearful. Another one of those sins that just aren't quite so bad. If you will. And they had good reason to be fearful, right? I mean, the nation's coming. They're worried about dying. And, you know, death is not a small thing. So they were apathetic and fearful. And God says, beware. If you don't change, I will do to you what I did to them. And it's tempting to say, well, my sin is not that bad. God, have you looked at that person? Yeah, God's looked at that person, but he's also looked at me. And my sin is that bad. And that is a reminder for all of us. There is no such thing as a tolerable sin. Every sin is rebellion. And to emphasize the importance of sin and to emphasize the importance of returning to God from our sin. Notice notice what the prophet does. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Return to me declares the Lord of hosts. That I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts has spoken. Who's the Lord of hosts? That term is used to indicate God's authority over armies. It's used to indicate his authority over the army of Israel. At other times, it's used to indicate his authority over the armies of the world. And at other times, it's used to indicate his authority over the armies of heaven. And the sense is, whatever army there is, God is over it. He is ultimate. He is authoritative. He is powerful. So some translations, I believe the NIV among them, have translated this phrase, the Lord of hosts, as the Lord Almighty. That phrase, Lord of hosts, you're familiar with, it's used 265 times in the Old Testament. 265 times in the Old Testament. It's used, brothers and sisters, 53 times in this book. 14 chapters of Zechariah account for 20% of the uses of this title of God. 
And what Zechariah wants his readers to hear is that God is ultimate. And you must stand before him. This isn't just some guy talking. It is the Lord Almighty, powerful, authoritative, who is speaking. And what does he say? (laughs) Speaks an amazing word of grace. Return to me. Return to me. The word return is a word that's often translated repent in the Old Testament. It includes a a turning back towards God, a movement away from sin and a movement towards God. There is even an implied irony in the word, though. The reason they need to return to God is because at some point they had first returned to their sin away from God. They had become dissatisfied with God, discontent with God, unconvinced of God, and said sin holds out something better. And the prophet is reminding them, sin holds nothing good for you. Come back to God. Return to Him. Notice also that he says, return to me. It's personal. It's relational. It's not just that the nation had been rebellious in general. They had been rebellious against God. And he is saying to them, come back to me. Come back to fellowship. Come back to intimacy. Come back to relationship. It's not just a matter of don't sin. It's a matter of leave your sin, give up your sin and come to God. As your satisfaction, as your joy. That's, that's the core of Zechariah's message. That's not just the core of the message of this section. Really, it, it pervades the entire book. Zechariah's calling them, repent. You've been apathetic, you've been fearful, you've been disobedient, you've been rebellious, you've given up on God. Come back. Come back. I've said with this that there is a blessing to repentance. What is that blessing? Well, he tells us, return to me, says the authoritative God, the Lord of hosts. Why? That I may return to you. That I may return to you. What does that mean? One of the things we talk about when we talk about reconciliation is That sinners are reconciled to God. God never needs to be reconciled to sinners because He has never done anything wrong. We always need to go to Him. He never needs to come to us. And yet here He says, so that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? Remember what happened when the nation went into captivity. Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel watched the temple And he watched the glory of God move up out of the Holy of Holies, stand over the temple, and then move to glory. God's glory departed. It was a visible sign. You've left me, I've left you. And I think what Zechariah is calling them to here is this isn't just about rebuilding the temple. 
This is about a restoration to God and a restoration in which His glory, the sign of His presence with you, returns. It's a sign, an indicator of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Everything that God promised to you through Abraham will come to fruition if you repent. There are good things ahead when you repent. There's restoration. There's delight. And we're going to see that in chapter 14. If you repent, the, the, the generation of Israel that repents is going to experience the restoration of God coming back to Israel Landing his feet on the Mount of Olives, splitting the Mount of Olives in two, and reigning from Jerusalem. He's coming back. There's blessing that's coming. And so, Zechariah tells them, the Lord of hosts has spoken. If you repent, you get all the blessings that have been promised to you as a nation. The blessing of repentance for the nation is that they would experience the promises of God. The blessing of repentance for us is that we experience all the spiritual blessings of God. We experience forgiveness and we are given the Holy Spirit as the the down payment for everything else that is coming to us and we avoid all of the sorrows that are associated with sin and unrepentance. In repentance, we receive no loss. We get no regrets. We have salvation and we have life, no death. That's 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10. Yeah, it's true. Repentance is hard because it will break you from your sin and break you of yourself, but it will give you a treasure infinitely greater than anything sin can give you. Sin only gives grief, ultimately. Oh, there's a few pseudo-treasures on the way, but they always are fake, and they always will only ultimately... culminate in grief. Repentance, and contrary, only gives joy, ultimately. Maybe not immediately. There are still hardships in this world, but there are never hardships, ultimately, for those who are repentant. This morning, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, what is likely holding you back is your own desire for sin and your unwillingness to repent to acknowledge that you are in error and you need help. Like Zechariah did for the nation of Israel, if that is your condition this morning, I urge you, I compel you, I exhort you, repent. Turn away from your sin and flee to Christ. Your sin will never give you what you want. Only Christ will give you what you want. Go to Him. Turn away from your sin. Ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to guide you to be your Savior, and He will. That's the blessing of repentance. See now the danger of repentance, verses 4 and 5. The danger of repentance. The truth is, you don't have to repent. It is possible to resist God. Is there a danger involved in doing that? Well, another generation did that. So, Zechariah warns them, Don't be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets, that is, prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, the pre-exilic prophets, the prophets that spoke before the exile in order to try and compel the nation not to go into exile, 
those former prophets spoke. And what did they say? They said, thus says the Lord of hosts. Thus says God ultimate, God almighty. Same message as Zechariah. They said, return now from your evil ways. Same message as Zechariah, return. From what were those prophets calling them to turn from? From your evil ways, that's your evil patterns, your evil pathways, perhaps even your evil desires, and from your evil deeds. So your evil pathway generally and your evil deeds, the particular places you stop and the particular sins you do on that evil pathway, the particular manifestations of your sin. Turn from all of that. But they did not listen. They did not give heed to me, declares the Lord. And I think the little phrase there at the end, declares the Lord, is really shorthand. He's already said Lord of hosts four times. I think he means us to understand. Thus declares the Lord of hosts. They didn't. God was not only commanding them. He says return. But he says, return now. That word now is, is, a, is, is a word that is, is kind of a pleading word. In a most generic sense, we might say, return, please. It's not just a command, but it's a solicitation. Won't you please return? Don't keep going where you're going. And they didn't. They didn't listen. They didn't give heed. Those are two parallel terms that simply mean they didn't obey They were hardened and unresponsive. They didn't care. They thought they had life figured out apart from God. And what was the result of that? Verse 5. Your fathers. Uh, Where are they? Those rebels who resisted God, resisted what God had to say. What, What happened to them again? It's similar to what Moses does in Deuteronomy chapter 32, speaking to the nation and compelling them to obey the second giving of the law as they're headed into the land of, of promise. And he says, remember the days of old. Consider all of the years of the generations. In other words, remember the past as you think about obeying me. And then he says, ask your father and he will inform you, your elders and they will tell you. Wait a minute. The fathers and elders are all dead. That's why they can go into the land. There are no elders to ask. And that's his point. They all died because of their sin. And Zacharias doing the very same thing here. Your fathers, where are they? What did their rebellion produce for them? Death. And the prophets? Do they live forever? In other words, the prophets have also died. On this earth, the prophets are not eternal either. Both kinds of people, godly men and ungodly men, all of them have died. What's his point? Repent now. There's urgency. You you think you've got all day. You think you've got decades. You don't necessarily. You may. But what makes you think if you continue to say no, 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 that at the very end you'll say yes. You've trained your heart to say no. You've trained your heart to be a rebel. And so Zechariah is reminding them the time 
to repent is afforded by only the smallest of windows of time. It's really short. And then you're gone. Israel did not have time to repent. Needed to do it now. And we don't have all the time in the world either. We need to do it now. There's a warning here. And danger about not repenting because only wrath waits for the unrepentant. And the danger is, is that you might miss that opportunity. There's a massive danger for unrepentance. I want you to notice one last attribute of repentance in verse 6. And that is the right of God to call for repentance. In verse 6, he's returning to the theme of verse 1. Though here he gives it in different terms. In verse 1, the Lord of hosts spoke through his prophet. In verse 6, the Lord of hosts speaks directly. Did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants and my prophets. And he uses two words there for scriptures. Words. When he says my words, that word, word, is the most common reference to Scripture. It's anything that is promised by God, anything that is commanded by God. Statutes is a little bit more specific. It refers to the binding force and the permanence of Scripture. It's, it's the engraved law of God. And it's a reminder that the prophet's words are not just words. They are God's eternally binding, authoritative word. We don't have to respond just when we hear God audibly speaks. Every time we pick up this book, God has spoken. It's authoritative. It compels us. It requires us to respond. And what happens when we don't? Notice what happened to that previous generation in Israel. My words overtook your father's. Like a hunter, it captured them and they could not escape the wrath and curse of their obedience. And that is exactly what Moses promised in Deuteronomy 18. If you don't heed, God will overtake you. And that is exactly what happened in that generation. God has a right to call for repentance and he will punish all non-repentance. So what do you think? How did the nation respond? To Zechariah. Notice the middle of verse 6. Then they repented. I think it's speaking there about the generation that heard the message of Zechariah. They repented. And how did they repent? As the Lord of hosts has purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds. So he has dealt with us. He has compelled us. He has called us. We've responded and we're trusting him to save us from our sin. They repented. And they experienced the blessings, at least temporarily, of humble obedience. We actually see that repentance in Ezra six, excuse me, Ezra five, and then the end of Ezra six. This opening admonition is a, a clarion call, not just for the nation of Israel, but for us. We we need repentance. We need brokenness. Two, two main lessons. Let me summarize it. Two lessons. Sin brings judgment. Repentance brings blessing.
It's not what the world will tell you. The world flips those around, doesn't it? A lot of churches flip those around. But sin always brings judgment. Sin never has a good end. Repentance always brings blessing. As Luther noted, our entire spiritual life is built on repentance. We come to faith in repentance and our life lived before God is in repentance. I need Him every day. Repentance will not always make life simpler. There was still opposition to the nation when they went to rebuild the temple. But it will always bring blessing and favor from God. This passage is fitting for us as we finish our worship this morning to come to the table of communion. For the one who is repentant, there is an awareness that the sin can never be used by God against him again. For those of us who are repentant and we've gone to God and said, I can't do anything about my sin. If I'm going to be saved, you must do it. Then he has done it and he has, through Jesus Christ, forgiven us our sins and that sin will never be held against us again. And that's what we remember at this table. Once we have received the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, God is only satisfied with us. And that life of satisfaction begins with repentance. Father, thank you for reminder of the essential nature of repentance, the critical nature of repentance, and even the joy of repentance. Might our hearts be satisfied with having been repentant as we come to this table this morning and remember Christ, the object to whom our repentance has taken us and the one through whom our repentance has brought transformation in us. It's because of Him that our repentance has turned to joy and our sorrow has become gladness. And so we remember him. Might we do so fittingly and appropriately, worthily, as the apostle says. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.